episode of the podcast. I, as always, I have a lot of dinosaur-related questions for you. This will get published through all the, the normal channels afterwards. But first things first, this is something that I, I was thinking about, you know, since I, I since the point that I asked you to do this till now. Are there certain dinosaurs that are so scarcely found where their value is like their marketplace value is shockingly high um, just because of how rare they are, not necessarily known? You know, it's a really interesting question uh, because I would think that, you know, what, what sets the price of these things are if something sells for that amount. Uh, you know, in, in 1993, uh, a T-Rex was estimated to sell for 200,000 bucks, a full skeleton. Uh, it wasn't until after the auction, of course, of Sue's that we realized that there's millions. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, worth millions of dollars. And uh, subsequently, Stan, that just sold, you know, is worth for $31.8 million. Uh, so I wouldn't say that's necessarily there are rare species that have a high value, but that can be certainly the case. Uh, if there hasn't been a species uh, found before, if it's just like, so if, if a specimen goes to auction and uh, this is a species that has never been discovered, uh, that would enrage the scientific community. But uh, as far as a collectible price, uh, yeah, the, the market would be pretty high. Uh, I can't think of a particular species, though, uh, to address your question as far as like one that's sold that is known to have a high valuation. Uh, but, uh, other than, other than that, it's usually the species has to sell before or has to sell, uh, once to really establish the market price. Are there legalities around selling dinosaurs if it's the only one known? There's, it depends on the country. Uh, there's no legal issues within the United States and I believe with other Western nations, I, I would have to see. Uh, the the uh, the intricacies of the Canadian law, uh, because there's you know Triceratops and T Rex are also discovered in Canada, uh, but the as far as other countries, there are certainly exportation uh, uh, legal issues. There's exportation laws against it. In fact, uh, I don't know if you've you've probably heard this before, but uh, Nicholas Cage bought a uh, I believe a Tyrannosaurid skull. So it's, it was a, a species that's a cousin of T-Rex, kind of in the same family. And uh, it was uh, found, and I should look up the country, but uh, it was in a, I believe, a, a, a Southeast Asian to, uh, you know, Central Asian country. And the, uh, the authorities actually had to request that uh, Nicolas Cage return the skull because it was sold to him illegally. So I believe the person who sold them the skull was uh, arrested and uh, Nicolas Cage had to uh, give the give the skull back. Damn. And he didn't get yeah. any of his money back, huh? No. I mean, just totally ripped off. Um, the, the seller, you know, was a criminal. Uh, you know, everybody pretty much lost in that case. So, uh, yeah, there's been there's been certain instances like that that have happened where the country outlaws the exportation of the fossil. It's fascinating. I'm sure you saw the um, the new news with the T-Rex. What was it? Stan that just sold or was that a yes. one? So yes. Stan that sold. Nobody knew who the buyer was. 
there was some controversy on Twitter that was like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm sure you saw that, but I think he had yes. like a cast in he had a skull cast in his living room. Um nothing mm-hmm. nothing crazy, but it's actually going to a natural history museum, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes, in in Dubai, I believe. And uh and so that that was kind of like thought of before. Like I I mean I you know, I think I guess anybody could guess that the mystery buyer had to be from Saudi Arabia or so, you know, or someone from that that region of the world who has the wealth to spend 30 million bucks on, on Stan. And so interestingly enough, I just actually consulted with uh, Pete Larson who was in the lawsuit for Stan. He was the one that, you know, prepped Stan and he and his brother Neil had a falling out. So that's why Stan was sold by the Black Hills Institute. And, uh, so in order to settle one of the brothers uh, assets in the company, that's why they sold Stan. And Stan was estimated to sell for $6 million is what the judge uh, ordered. At least when, when it was sold, it was established that it would sell for $6 million probably. <laughs> and then of course, sells for $31.8 million. And, uh, and the, with, with, with regards to The Rock, you know, The Rock has the, the copy replica of Stan. I believe you could get a replica skull for $11,000. I was just uh, with Pete at the Black Hills Institute a few months ago. Uh, observing the uh, really assembly line they have for for making Stan replicas, so uh, it's pretty cool that Ro- the Rock has that, and he also shared a picture of Pete and the rest of the Black Hills Institute in that post on Instagram that he uh, had to tell everybody that he wasn't the mystery buyer. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So, which, which would you rather have, a real tooth or a skull replica? Mm, that's a really good question. It would. Uh, it would depend on. I suppose, you know, obviously the, the, the beauty is in the eye of the collector. Uh, aesthetically, the entire skull is, uh, is pretty cool. But uh, if you value it, uh, the nature of owning the actual fossil is uh, something that I think a lot of people would, uh, would indulge in. That's pretty cool. So in regards to the... Uh, you said the cousin or, or something of that nature of the T-Rex, that was the skull that Nicolas Cage bought. Mm-hmm. Are Do they come at an extreme discount compared to the main T-Rex that everybody knows just because of its pop culture fame, which I guess was just established through movies? One isn't inherently, or tell me if I'm wrong, one isn't inherently maybe it is stronger, bigger, faster. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it also comes down to completion too, but yes, the, the, uh, the, uh, T-Rex is of course just the, the iconic value of it, uh, is certainly makes it more than other species. But if you have a, a complete specimen of another Tyrannosaurid, then, uh, that could go for, you know, a higher price than a, a partially complete T-Rex. Uh, and, so again, it comes to that uh, completion thing, but to address the iconic nature is yes, it's the it's the uh, the the star status of the Rex uh, truly uh, establishes that uh, that price that uh, people are willing to uh, spend on it. But again, you know, there's a huge market in Asia, uh, so there's a lot of Tyrannosaurid species that have been uh, bought and traded, discovered in in Asia, uh, particularly in China, has had a huge um, paleontology boom in the last 20 years. Uh, so, 
you know, there's, there's, there's a huge market in Asia for that. So how many Tyrannosaurid species are there? You know, I'd have to go off the top of my head, but uh, the ones I could list uh, would be, let's see, Tarbosaurus, I believe that is the Asiatic one, Eutyrannus, which is a, uh, which is also an Asiatic Tyrannosaurid, uh, let's see, Albertosaurus, um, and you have Displetosaurus, uh, Appalachiosaurus, uh, Allioramus is another one. And uh, Alliramus, Displetosaurus, and Albertosaurus um, are all uh, North American species. I should actually stand corrected. I think Alliramus is, is Asiatic as well. But um, so, so they spread across the globe. These, uh, these, these specimens are um, across the globe. And we could actually piece together through time the evolutionary history of T. rex through these other uh, cousins, these other uh, evolutionary predecessors to uh, T. rex. Some aren't necessarily directly uh, preceding T. rex on the uh, evolutionary tree, but they're certainly cousins that are from a earlier time period in history. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, what do you think is the biggest misconception when it comes to the general public and, and you know, dinosaurs? Is it that people think dinosaur bones exist? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big one I, I hear on TikTok is <laughs> people can't uh, can't believe that it's real. Um, I think that's kind of one of the things that I, I do is I try to have a personable face uh, to fossil preparation and paleontology because usually it's it's a big old institution uh, that deals with uh, paleontology and it's kind of like a faceless institution and. Uh, you know, that could be either be the Natural History Museum or the Smithsonian. So people, for some reason, kind of might not, uh, some at least might not, uh, you know, have that personal effect when it comes to dinosaurs. Uh, they just kind of think that, uh, you know, some, you know, wave my fingers, you know, scientists just off somewhere else finding stuff and you don't know who it is and you don't know if the specimens are real or whatever. I, this, this is just kind of the crazy stuff I hear on online. It's, it's kind of silly, but um I think one of the things I want to do was was uh, provide a face and a narration, and then somebody explaining the process of of a uh, fossil preparation and fossil discovery. And I think that's one of the misconceptions is kind of how hard it is. For sure, I mean, I, I can definitely see that through your TikToks how much work it actually is. So, how how long does it take to from? I mean, since you've done it, discovery of a triceratops to auction or presentation or museum quality yeah, yeah depending on the uh the uh, how much is there it could take um you know a few months uh, to a year or two uh for skeletons uh, certainly it's a it's a couple of years and a lot of that also has to come with scheduling because you might need uh people to do certain tasks you might need uh, the expertise of a welder in certain instances for uh, mounting specimens. Uh, for a uh, regular fossil, it should be like a you know a, like a rib or a um, any or an arm bone, depending on how big it is, uh, should be within like a few weeks to a month of uh, preparation time. Um, and uh, but as far as like a skeleton or a major skull, where you really have to be delicate. Uh, it could, it could take, uh, yeah, a few months to a year. Now, so the, what, what is the largest species ever discovered? 
I'd have to say that it would be one of the titanosaurs. So that is the group that uh, is of uh, sauropods, which uh, are the long neck uh, plant eating dinosaurs. They would either some some were grass grazers, but most were uh, ate from treetops. And uh, you know, I think one of the largest ones would be uh, Titanosaurus and uh, Argentinosaurus. And they were found in Patagonia, South America. And the, uh, you know, Brachiosaurus or Giraffe Titan, Amphicelius, uh, there's, there's a lot of really huge species. Some are longer than others, and then others are estimated to be kind of like thicker, so they weighed more. So the size kind of varies, but the, uh, the Titanosaurs are the largest animals that, uh, group of animals that uh, ever walked the earth. Is it? possible to find one of them in near completion has that ever been done there have been sauropods that have been found that have been yeah pretty pretty complete uh in some of the early on uh, bone wars of cope and marsh there were two paleontologists that went out in the 1880s into the american west when they first started finding uh dinosaurs which was you know stegosaurus allosaurus and then uh, the sauropods brontosaurus uh, and apatosaurus and um, diplodocus as well and uh, those are all sauropods that have been found. They've been pretty complete. Uh, it would depend on the conditions in which they're buried. So, so Dinosaur National Park uh, actually has a bone bed of sauropods. I mean, entire herd that was probably caught up in a massive flooding event uh, that pretty much preserved them very well. I mean, you could visit it. It's a huge, it's a national park. So you could go and you could go see the bone beds and uh, they have a lot of uh, specimens that are pretty near completion that are, uh, that, that are uh, buried there. Uh, but again, you have to think back in the day, you know, a, a titanosaur, I mean, you'll see on national geographic of how, how elephants are scavenged right on the, on the great plains and the Serengeti. And you see all the species that they feed. It's almost like a whale that dies, right? You have all the stuff at the bottom of the seafloor that forages on a whale. Now, imagine a titanosaur dying. Imagine the the amount of species and that would allosaurs and carnivores and and uh, pterosaurs and birds that would be uh, and little raptors that would be just absolutely scavenging a massive carcass. Uh, and 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 those bones, you know, it would generally get scattered pretty well. It would depend on if they lived uh, near water or mud. So if you had river systems or something, it would, that, that's how, you know, the full body would be preserved. Uh, but a lot of the times, you know, when we find titanosaurs, you could find a um, part of a, a vertebral column, so part of the neck or the spine, or um, the, uh, or, or just like, you know, giant, giant uh, arm bones, like a giant femur. I mean, the femurs are like six, seven feet long. It's like ridiculous. So even even bigger in some cases. So usually with the titanosaurs, you'll find some big old ribs and a vertebral column, and then a uh, and then some uh, arm bones or leg bones. I never thought about the scavenging part, but obviously that makes perfect sense. It's true mm-hmm. with every species. I mean, shoot, it happens with humans. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, what's the most intact dinosaur that's ever been discovered, to your knowledge? There are there are many. Um, I would say many, but there are several um, fully complete specimens, like hundred percent complete. Uh, Cetacosaurus is a uh, is a uh, Asiatic species that uh, was. There's actually there's there's like eighty of them that were buried together 
and like a herd. So they kind of looked like uh, either Sega antelope or deer, you know, like moving in a large herd that were buried oh, wow. by a mudslide. And wow. those specimens are 100% complete. Not only that, their soft tissue is preserved in the clay. What, is, what so does that mean we, in terms of the fossil so, record? Yeah, so in terms of the fossil record, it's not the actual tissue, like so not to conflate with people might ask wait dinosaur tissue was no it's it's the fossilized imprint of the flesh and uh in some cases uh even the uh, you could actually tell what color they were it's so well preserved you could tell like the shading and uh, you could look at it under an electron microscope and you could actually see the uh uh the uh these pigment molecules that were fossilized and you can actually tell what color they were, which is really amazing. So, so Tachosaurus is a, is a really, really well-preserved specimen. The dueling dinosaurs that just went to the North Carolina Museum. So that's a uh, juvenile uh, T-Rex slash nanomorph. And we could talk about that. But um, it's a, uh, at least right now, it's established as a juvenile T-Rex that is 100% complete. So it would be literally the most complete T-Rex ever if it is a T-Rex. And, um, and there have been other specimens that have been found in, um, like micro raptors that were found in the same clay deposits. That's why Asia is so good because they have all these clay deposits where, um, I mean, the, the, not only is the entire hundred percent skeleton, uh, complete, it also has, uh, the feather imprints that are also complete. That's pretty crazy. How can a feather, well, I guess. Fe feather imprint would make sense, but I've heard of examples of there being color for old fossils. Is that, mm -hmm. is that at all possible? And how true could that be? Yeah, there's like with the case of, um, there's several raptor species that, uh, were preserved in these clay deposits. So imagine when you're digging and then you're, you're, uh, chopping up like thin pieces of shale, you would open up this one, you know, uh, thin shale, uh, plate and then boom, there's a raptor underneath there. I mean, it's, it's really cool. You can find fish and turtles and lizards. There've been lots of things that have been preserved in those. And, um, but for finding the color of, um, of a specific, uh, species, you could take an electron microscope and the, the uh, color pigment uh, cells have actually been fossilized, which is really crazy because as it turns out, uh, things can actually, um, uh, you know, very small, uh, uh, biological, you know, material can be fossilized. Like pollen is super microscopic yet pollen is fossilized. Uh, so you could actually have, uh, the pigments that are fossilized and based on the shape of the pigment, we could say, oh, that's white, that's orange, that's black. Uh, this is blue. This is multicolor. This is, you know, so we could actually see the color of these specimens. And uh, so there's a raptor that was found and they looked at it under an electron uh, microscope and they saw that the raptor was orange with a white belly and its tail was ringed like a lemur with, with an orange, wow. orange and white. Yeah. That's not how they're, uh, how they're often depicted in cinema, huh? Right. Yeah. Cinema, it has it totally, totally off with regards to no, um, no plumage, no feather, uh, stuff. The new Jurassic world movie in its defense in the trailer, I saw some feathered raptors. So I guess we'll have to see, 
uh, how that how that turns out. But but I mean, they were they were multicolored. You know, look at the modern dinosaurs, the birds. Look at the variety of colors they come in. Uh, the variety of colors that uh, animals come in in general is uh, is something that can be uh, pretty much hypothesized and in some very rare cases proven with dinosaurs. So if raptors definitely had feathers in mm -hmm. some capacity, what does that say about T-Rexes? T-Rexes? Uh, probably not. And now the species, the other Tyrannosaurid uh, cousin I mentioned before, Eutyrannus, is about 30 feet long. So it's a little bit smaller than T-Rex. Uh, still a pretty decent sized theropod dinosaur, but it's totally, it was found in one of those clay deposits, totally covered in a fuzzy plumage, like what you find on one of those fuzzy chickens or a cassowary or an emu, um, totally covered. And that's because Eutyrannus lived in a colder environment. So it needed to maintain heat. So you could have had larger theropods if they lived in a colder environment that had that that plumage that kind of that uh you know fuzzy covering but with tyrannosaurus rex in particular uh you know the rex lived in a subtropical area right the uh, lower media or the lancian of which t-rex triceratops lived in so that's the western side of north america uh, back during the late cretaceous this was a warm environment it was uh, it was so warm that the uh, ice caps were melted, so there was an ocean in the middle of the continent. So, so it was a pretty, you know, there, there's we find uh, palm ferns along with Don redwood trees. So this is kind of a subtropical environment that T. Rex lived in. It was pretty warm. So an animal that size, and we you know, to address your question, it kind of gets into the uh, sort of the uh, you know the, the physiology of animals when you're when you're really big uh, and you're in a warm environment, you have to lose heat your body's producing so much heat so t-rex wouldn't have been covered in feathers maybe it had some like uh, you know, pl plumage that uh, might have been very sparse on its on its spine right on its back kind of like how african elephants and asian elephants have a little bit of fur sometimes right. on their back uh but you wouldn't an asian elephant or an african elephant isn't furry uh so it's uh so a t-rex would have would have been uh, pretty much had its like rough kind of scaly skin. And we, and we found T-Rex imprints of skin too. That's interesting. Now, how did evolution not take out those dinky T-Rex arms? Or is there any chance that they weren't arms and were some sort of wing or something else? So they, yeah, they wouldn't have been like a wing. So when you look at an ostrich, like ostrich, ostriches have wings, cassowaries, chickens have wings even though they're, they're flightless, uh, they still, you know, ostriches and cassowaries descended from something that flew. They descended from a flying bird, which then decided to become more ground-based, and that's why we have ostriches. A T-Rex or a theropod, dinosaurs, they, they didn't fly, um, or at least the larger ones didn't fly. The little, the little micro-raptors that were kind of arboreal and lived in trees, they might have glided a little bit, but... Uh, but a giant, you know, a T-Rex, a large predatory dinosaur with arms and claws, uh, th that wasn't a wing. It was a claw. It was an arm. Uh, th there's been many reasons as to why a T-Rex, um, you know, has small arms. But I think it's kind of clear to see that it just didn't need them. It just didn't, you know, when you have a such a powerful upper body as far as like a neck and a head of a dragon plus, you know, a powerful tail and, and uh, 
legs that hold up your 20,000 pounds of weight, uh, you know, you don't need claws. Uh, and if you look at dinosaurs that have weaker jaws, like the spinosaurids that have a little bit more uh, thinner snouts for snatching fish, they have larger hands because they need them because they don't have a powerful jaw. And so there's kind of that trade-off. Like when you see dinosaurs with the larger, you know, the Tyrannosaurids with the larger skulls, you see that they have smaller arms as opposed to uh, other predatory dinosaurs that have uh, less powerful jaws. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, if you look at uh, mammalian tails, like, you know, reptiles have large tails. Dinosaurs had large tails. A lion has a very small tail. So a lion's tail is the equivalent of a T-Rex's arms because a lion just doesn't need a you know, giant powerful tail to exist. So the same thing goes with T-Rex arms. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I, I'll never yeah. forget one thing I remember you told me. I think last time we did this where, you know, T-Rexes are theorized to have been able to see miles ahead of them. Mm-hmm. on an open field that's pretty crazy and that they could also see you when you're like standing still oh yeah i mean it's actually even been hypothesized and there's probably a lot of evidence for it at least from what we know based on how eyes work and the size of t-rex is that t-rex probably had the best eyesight of any animal that ever walked the earth and that's because if eyes are based off if the power of an eye is based off of, you know, the lens, right? The magnifying uh, thing and eyeballs that, you know, allows the eye to see the larger, the lens, the better you could see. So T-Rex had, you know, the largest eyes, as far as like you look at its skull, it, it had forward facing predatory eyes. And you could probably think that they were similar in form and function to an Eagle. Uh, so, the fact that it had a giant eye that was the size of a softball uh, could pretty much mean that it would see for miles. It could, it could definitely see for miles. They could smell from long distances. And uh, so, yeah, T-Rex definitely could see you if you were standing in front of it. Uh, so it's kind of funny how that Jurassic Park trope um, is, uh, is uh, so wrong <laughs> because not only can it can't see you, it had the best eyesight of anything that ever walked the earth. Pretty crazy. That's so funny. Well, I'll remember that when they actually bring the dinosaurs back. Yeah. Um, so whales, if I'm not mistaken, are the certain whale species are the biggest animals to ever exist. Is there any chance that there were larger animals back in the day or that, <laughs> weren't fossilized yeah there's um there are uh it's certainly possible that there's certain uh reptilian or ichthyosaur species that could have um evolved to be larger uh there are pretty large um ichthyosaur species that have been discovered already that are actually almost i mean there's certainly some a lot of uh the size of a lot of whales and then the length almost comes comparable to a uh to a blue whale uh, so there are, there are certainly species that have been discovered that are, their whale size, um, is, but as far as anything matching the blue whale in particular, um, at least nothing in weight has been able to, uh, to match the blue whale, but it's, uh, you know, certainly possible that throughout the earth's, uh, time that you could have an animal that's just as size that just, that, that was just as large as a blue whale. Uh, nothing on land, of course, could do that. Even the titanosaurs that are as long as blue whales uh, aren't, you know, the same mass as a blue whale because 
When you're in the water, you don't have to worry about gravity, so that's why you grow larger. Is it physically, like accounting for physics, impossible for a land animal to be that big, or has it just not been done? Because those plant-eating titanosaur types were obviously very large. Is that sort of the max that's that's been proven whether it be due to physics or anything else yeah and that is uh yeah that's i mean pretty much you, you we've we've rolled the uh, we've done the simulation the evolutionary simulation all of this whole time on earth and we've could kind of see the maximum size of land animals and the titanosaurs were it uh, biomechanically and physically due to, due to constraints and a whole other myriad of factors like starvation, um, you know, foraging, reproduction, uh, different things that, that uh, could also constrain the size of an animal and bo- also the environment too. So, you know, the, you think you didn't have any massive extinction events uh, that, that happened uh, that wiped out forests and stuff, which allowed the titanosaurs to, to evolve to the size they did for, for tens of millions of years. Uh, so you, there, there are a lot of factors that, that add to the size but that can direct or that could direct the evolutionary maximum size of an animal. But as far as um, on land, uh, yeah, the titanosaurs are it. And to answer that question further uh one of my old professors uh actually did a he was a he's an ecological modeler so he models a bunch of stuff on the computer and and and, uh, does that with the biology so it's called computational biology and he actually predicted the maximum size as to what a mammal could be on land and sure enough through the fossil record his model is right uh you know uh, dinotherium and paraceratherium are two giant mammals that existed a couple tens of millions of years ago after the dinosaurs went extinct. And those were the largest uh, land animals that ever lived. And they were about as big as uh, his model predicted. And uh, so there are a myriad of different factors, not just gravity uh, that contribute to the maximum size of an animal, but essentially the titanosaurs are it. That's about how big uh, you could get on, on land. Hmm. Dinotherium sounds like a modern day cryptocurrency. Yeah, um, right. We might have to name that. Uh, we have to take yeah. that trademark the name or something. <laughs> the, the next, the next crypto. Um, so, in terms of bringing species back, the, what's the time limit on that? Ten thousand years, or a little bit longer than that? As far as you know, bringing bringing a uh, extinct species. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, we there there are a few different things you could do. We will never ever be able to bring back dinosaurs as we know them. You know the prehistoric, uh, uh, you know Mesozoic dinosauria, the T Rex, Triceratops, you know Titanosaurs. We can never bring them back. Uh, there is absolutely no biological material, with re- with the exception of trace organic molecules, but that's really nothing. Um, but there's, there's literally what, nothing. What does that mean? What is, what does trace organic molecules mean? So kind of like on, on Mars, how they, I don't know if you've seen on the, um, some of the announcements that NASA's made on Mars, they found organic molecules, right? And those organic molecules are probably billions of years old and it's really nothing. It's not DNA. It's not proteins. It's not, uh, it's just a, a molecule that, uh, breaks down. And, and as far as, uh, dinosaur stuff, there's no proteins or DNA. 
like literally nothing. There's no organic material um, with regards to dinosauria. And uh, so that, unfortunately, Jurassic Park will absolutely never happen. Uh, if you were to put the dinosaur DNA in a uh, pressurized and air-controlled and temperature-controlled uh, tube, a machine, let's say, some hypothetical machine, the longest it could last would be maybe a few million years because DNA just breaks down. Without enzymes to repair it, DNA just totally breaks down after an animal dies. Now, what, right. what we, yeah, so what we can do is we could bring back animals from the Ice Age because their organic material, their carcasses, their mummies are still here. They're still preserved in the permafrost. So we can actually get the DNA of these uh, extinct species that are very recently extinct. I mean, you know, you think of uh, uh, compared to the dinosaurs, the, which of, of which last list lived last about, you know, 65 and a half million years ago, uh, you know, 10,000, a 10,000 year old mammoth or a 30,000 year old mammoth or horse or uh, bison or lion. Uh, that's nothing, right? That's a blink of an eye. So they're their, uh, their bodies are still there. Their organic material is still there. And we've actually sequenced the entire uh, genomes of these animals. So uh, we, we will be able to bring them back in some capacity in the next decade or two, maybe even less. That will be very cool. Yeah. Now, couldn't we, like the same way that you can breed up to any of these Ice Age animals, in theory, even if it, say, took hundreds of years, couldn't you breed up to a dinosaur-esque species since we have things like crocodiles and turtles, which mm -hmm. were around then? Yeah, you could, you can, what you could do with a dinosaur is you could actually take a bird, which is a dinosaur, uh, kind of like how a mouse and a whale are mammals, placental mammals, a, a bird is a dinosaur. So if you think of dinosaurs as a, a group like mammals um, or marsupials, you know, as a, as a subgroup of mammals, I guess dinosauria are a, a subgroup of reptiles. But um, you, you could take a, a bird and you could actually tweak its genome because inside of it, if you look at a bird embryo at some point, it actually has a tail, uh, a uh, snout, and claws on its uh, on its arms. So Jesus, yeah. So you could actually do that, and then as the bird develops, it develops into a regular bird. This is the same way with humans. Humans we at some tails, point right? in the embryonic development. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We have tails. Uh, sometimes we have gills even earlier. Uh, so that shows kind of like the fish-like uh, uh, ancestors. Also, we can yeah. we can hang like monkeys when we're born. Right. Right. There's 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 a bunch of little primordial uh, uh, ancestral things that are still left over in our genome, and when we activate these, uh, you can actually have um, you could you could unlock these traits. So there were two brothers in Mexico that um, were uh, had a ancestral gene that turned on, which they had fur that covered every square inch of their body. So they worked for a circus. Unfortunately, you know, it was at a time where we didn't treat uh, genetic uh, uh, mutations in a very positive light like we do today. So if you had a genetic mutation, you were, you know, a quote freak, right? And performed in a freak show. Um, so, you know, these two brothers that were uh, in the uh, 
they were they turned out to be you know gymnasts and they worked for the circus but but point being is that they had this uh ancestral gene that turned on and so we could do that same thing for uh for birds we can give them claws and tails and we could turn their beaks into snouts and then we could give them teeth too and that's been done with embryos and uh there's a few researchers that do it. There's not like a full-on coordinated team that's doing it, but there's been independent re- researchers that have turned on the tail gene, that have turned on the snout and the teeth gene, uh, the arms and hands. Uh, so you can turn an ostrich or a chicken or a cassowary into something that looks and feels like a dinosaur out of a movie. So the answer is yes, we can do it. Yes, yeah, we can do it. <laughs> yeah. But but the uh, you know the uh, this was the this was a big uh, I think you're okay. Sorry, I think your audio was kind of. I think I think we're back now. I think we're good now. Okay, all right, good. Uh, so you know there, there's a recent headline that came out where uh, there was a there's a startup that's actually looking to bring back the mammoth fully, and they just they just raised a hundred million dollars in seed funding. What is what, and, how, uh, does that, how does that yeah. company make money though? You know, I think it's starting off as more of a, is more of just a project-based entity as opposed to like a company to invest in. I'm sure the investors are pretty much almost like donors. Right. And you're uh, betting on their history and the, and your association to that history. Right. And the company is, uh, is also, uh, headed by George Church, who's, I mean, he's Time Magazine, Top 100, most influential people. Uh, he's the, he's the head of a massive lab at Harvard. Uh, he was, uh, integral in the pioneering of, uh, CRISPR-Cas9 edit, gene editing technology. Uh, there's a, you know, a huge, he's a, he's a Titan in the field and, uh, he's the head of the company. And one of his goals was to bring back the mammoth. Uh, he, he had, he's received funding from Peter Thiel throughout the years, uh, he's, you know, there's been, cause Peter Thiel is very interested in the mammoth resurrection project. And, but now there's a, there's the, uh, new company that was just founded I'll have to think of the name of it, but I mean, there's, you know, you can look it up probably pretty quickly. There's tons of headlines, but the, uh, so they are looking to essentially take a mammoth, uh, genome and insert the mammoth genes into an Asian elephant and then put this embryo inside of a regular Asian elephant to then, uh, give birth to a, uh, something that, uh, is not a hundred percent a mammoth, but it will look and feel very much like a woolly mammoth. I can't wait, but yeah. the dinosaur point is extremely interesting. Being able to adjust the genomes at the early stages and make mm. something come out looking like a dinosaur soon. Yeah. I mean, I don't, even know if there's a difference between the, I mean, what, what is the difference right. between that right. and Jurassic park? Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it, it there pretty much wouldn't be, um, other than in, in the movie in Jurassic park, they're kind of doing what they're doing with the mammoth project. They're taking, uh, the extinct genome and they're using extinct genes, uh, and, and placing them in live animals. Whereas, Whereas the, you know, the, the, the bird project would just be, you know, activating genes that were already there present in the, uh, in the, in the animals, which, which, I mean, it could be, uh, it could, it could certainly be done. Um, it could be done 
you know, this year, if he had enough money and just focused a Manhattan project, you know, on doing it and a bunch of scientists with funding, they could certainly do it. Why hasn't this happened yet? You know, they're, they're Jack Horner, who uh, Alan Grant from Jurassic Park, the character is based off of Jack Horner. He's a very famous paleontologist. You know, about five years ago, he gave a TED talk on it that he was getting these scientists together and then um, things kind of just fizzled out and there wasn't like a huge emphasis on it. A lot of the people that can do it, uh, sometimes they just kind of don't really care too much about it or they don't uh, have enough uh, funding for it. So they would kind of need... How much uh, does something like this cost? Like a billion dollars or not that much? Oh, not that much. Uh, I would even say in the tens of millions, if not between 20 and 30 million, if I were to put probably even less, probably even less. And that's that's to to do what? That's just to add, uh, to figure out the the different genes to, to be, to activate in a bird embryo, let's say a chicken. So pretty much you would be manipulating chicken embryos and it doesn't cost that much as if you have the lab set up and um aside from all the infrastructure costs of just a lab you would have to just put in the manpower to uh, figure out the genes that uh, turn on the raptor or dinosaurian tail claws and teeth and uh then you'd have to be the person to to take (laughs) take the the ethical um shot at uh at really doing this and being all over the news and everything that's a that's actually a huge reason why it hasn't been done is nobody wants to be the person to have done it nobody wants to bring back dinosaurs yeah nobody wants to really really uh uh take the bullet of the media and the bioethicists and the you know religious context the uh maybe even political context who knows right what kind of pandora's box uh really bringing back extinct genes uh, can, or, or at least dormant genes, uh, would do. Um, we see this with, uh, manipulating food products with GMOs. We see this with, um, IVF, even in humans. Um, I, you know, we, we, uh, have that, that's like a regular thing for people to, to do, to, to, to have kids. And, and yet there's still some sort of, uh, some groups find that to be, uh, ethically, uh, problematic, but, um, that's yeah. ridiculous though. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it totally is, you know, and, and, uh, and so, so how do you feel about bringing back dinosaurs? Do you think it's, there's a problem with it? I think it, obvi- I mean, you know, from my perspective, it's awesome. It's, I uh, agree. it's, uh, it, 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 it isn't like the movie Jurassic park. It, it's really a philosophical film. It's not even really about dinosaurs, which is a, kind of a funny thing, but it, dinosaurs are just kind of the placeholder for the adventure. The real kind of core of the movie is the bioethics. And it takes place, you know, in the conversation at the at dinner, you know, in the one scene in the movie where they say, you know, in, in uh, Malcolm says, uh, you know, you're, you're so preoccupied whether or not you could, you didn't stop and think if you should. And really bringing, giving birds a bunch of raptor-like adaptations really doesn't do anything harmful for the environment. It's just a really cool experiment. It's a really cool endeavor uh, to now, do. What if, what if you did that with ostriches? Yeah. So if you, you, would have a, you would have a dinosaur ostrich farm, and I certainly would want a whole, a whole herd of them. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. So, I mean, that so would be let's amazing. Say, let's say an ostrich, for example. What? What would you, so in the genome, in theory, or not in theory, in actuality, there are all of these dormant traits. So 
much bigger claws, bigger tails. Uh, you know, what what other features would there be? You would have uh, instead of the beak, you would have a snout. Uh, you could add teeth to the uh, to the snout because teeth are, are dormant genes as well. Um, and uh, it would be interesting to see how an, an ostrich would move with a tail, right? Uh, with something that it's not used to having on its body. Um, and they actually did an experiment with chickens on this. They actually attached a, a, a kind of a strap-on dinosaur tail. And the chicken actually uh, walked uh, pretty, pretty okay. I mean, it didn't really uh, bother it too much. So I assume that if we put chickens on these birds, they would still be able to maneuver uh, just fine. Uh, but the, but yeah, if you, if you were to do it to like a cassowary, you know, those are the, uh, those are the birds that are in Far Cry, the video game series in case anybody right, right, played right. that. Uh, so it, now imagine doing that to a cassowary, right? Then it would be, it would be kind of crazy, but I mean, that's not, you know, world ending kind of bio, bio, biotech right. or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now the more important larger issue is actually the Pleistocene, the, the ice age mammals. Because the Pleistocene Resurrection Project and the Mammoth Resurrection Project is not um, just to make a theme park. I mean, there is a intended consequences ecologically with resurrecting woolly mammoths. Because what we want to do is actually resurrect mammoths and, you know, have them live along bison, horses, camels, uh, maybe a few other ungulate so or bovine species that were extinct in the Ice Age that we could, you know, resurrect. Uh, Definitely, we shouldn't we, bring back the saber-toothed tigers. But at that point, I don't know yes. what the difference is between them and dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean the 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 saber-toothed cats would be there. There isn't. It's actually kind of hard to bring back a saber-toothed cat because they're not actually in Siberia or the Yukon in Alaska, where the frozen mummified, you know, permafrost is. Uh, oh, so okay. yes, the saber-toothed are actually in in slightly warmer environments there in North America. And, uh, well, I mean, North America is pretty cold back in the day, but, um, that, and then South America as well, where the saber-toothed cats were, there were also, you know, homotherium was also another species that was present in, uh, Europe, Eurasia and Africa, but, but there actually haven't been any saber-toothed uh, mummies found because they're not in the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the permafrost frozen mud that preserves these mummies that saber-toothed just didn't live in that area. But, uh, with, with bringing back this whole ecosystem, it's actually designed to knock down bushes and trees and make a grassland. So during the ice age, every continent was like the Serengeti, a vast grassland of mammoths and elephants and ground sloths, which uh, were accompanied by horses, deer, antelope, bison, uh, a myriad of other camels lived on every continent. Uh, and they were hunted by big cats and, and bears. And, and uh, this, this ecosystem was lost. And the last ecosystem that we know of is Africa with big cats and lions and everything. But that was every continent was with mammoths and lions and saber tooth, you know. So really the, the mammoth resurrection project would actually be able to bring back uh, these savanna steppe grassland ecosystems uh, to different parts of the world. Why did mammoths go back, go extinct in the first place? Was it part hunted by tiger and people, I guess, or was it, uh, 
climate condition? It's a huge debate. It's it's uh, pretty much kind of established that it was both. And then the debate comes at how much was one or the other responsible? Was it climate or was it people? Uh, some species, like in Australia, Australia had a lot of weird things that lived during the Ice Age. And we're talking 10-foot-tall kangaroos. We're talking marsupial rhinos. So it looked like a wombat, but it was the size of a rhino. Lots of weird stuff in Australia. But, but to, yeah, to, to address the, uh, the mammoth issue, it has with, with, you know, I read a paper a few years ago that uh, kind of dealt that, that dived onto this and it did like a model of the woolly mammoth range uh, throughout the time. So it did like the woolly, woolly mammoth range from 100,000 years to 75 to 50 to 25 to 10,000 years ago. And I think that what that paper pretty much said was that uh, it was kind of like if the climate shrunk uh, mammoths uh, native ranges uh, as forests uh, began to uh, encroach onto the grasslands of which mammoths depended on uh, mammoths were forced into more of a smaller area to forage and that left them more susceptible to human hunting so it was a combination of both but the you know this has been on joe rogan um uh, randall carlson is kind of like a geophysicist and natural historian he was he's been on rogan multiple times and uh, he, you know, pretty much looks at the Younger Dryas impact theory. So an asteroid is theorized to have impacted Earth, which actually 10,000 or sorry, I should say 12,000 years ago, which caused this uh, massive climatic shift, which actually caused the extinction of a lot of the Pleistocene megafauna. And so a lot of people lean towards an, uh, an ecological or an environmental reason as to why the mammoths and the other megafauna went extinct. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so funny. Why, why do you think people are generally so much more excited about bringing back mammoths and, and animals of that nature from the Ice Age than, you know, adjusting these genomes to actually turn chickens into dinosaurs by activating, you know, these dormant uh, genomic traits? You know, I think that the, the appeal of one over the other is that, um, you know, just turning a, a, a cassowary or a uh, ostrich or a chicken into a raptor-like dinosaur is really amazing. It's cool. Uh, but the thing about the Pleistocene revival is you are reviving that species. So if you're, if you're manipulating a chicken, it's still a chicken. Like it's not going to behave anything differently. It's still an ostrich. But couldn't you breed it over time? You, you could like make them more aggressive, further? I guess. Yeah. Right. Right. But, but, but the fact that like the mammoth resurrection, you are resurrecting right, the mammoth. It's the same thing. I mean, it's such a crazy yeah. concept that you could bring yeah. it back and it would behave the same way. Obviously mm -hmm. we can't validate its behavior from back then entirely, but I imagine it would be pretty close. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about genetics and behavior, like animals do, of course, learn from their parents, but I mean, behavior is, is pretty genetically ingrained. Uh, that's, that's kind of how a lot of animals uh, naturally know how to do stuff. Cause that's kind of the, another thing is that animals, yes, they do. They do learn from their parents, but a lot of what they do is just 
is just natural. It just comes naturally. And so if you were to bring back these extinct species, then I think you, you, you certainly would see them uh, act like they did. Man, so we we just need to get a twenty to thirty million together, and then <laughs> yeah. get the right people. I feel like these days, though, since so many people and things are anonymous, you could have a, a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization, um, fund and run this experiment. Now we're talking as much without as much backlash. Yeah, absolutely, and and. Uh... You know, I've talked to uh, a few people, uh, and uh, Ariella uh, Kohler Riley is actually uh, one. She's a, uh, I believe she's a PhD candidate, and uh, she, she's an MD PhD candidate, and she is uh, part of, uh, you know, a, a couple of DAO projects, and it's uh, pretty much part of the biomedical DAO, uh, and what that is is that they're decentralizing uh biomedical information so it's not like exclusive to uh to any um any uh, company or pharmaceutical company uh so that's kind of an interesting thing that the dow projects are doing is that uh, you're starting to see uh, information that which is usually uh, sequestered from the public is now um you know being re- released on you know through dow projects and so that could actually work where if you're to do something that is biomedically or bioethically shaky and people didn't want to be associated or whatever publicly you could have a dow project that could in theory yeah fund uh some sort of uh dinosaurian revival <laughs> 30 million is nothing to that world too yeah I mean, 40 million was put together in three days for the purchase of one of 25 constitution copies or right. one of, more than more than 25 um but i mean right shoot, that sounds pretty pretty dang doable if 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 you know i mean yeah if if you were to get any any big hedge fund or billionaire or anyone get that easy 20 million dollars together house all the scientists at a certain lab you know uh provide housing infrastructure oh you could get it done you can knock it out absolutely and it would just take that isn't you know it would take that that less than what the budgets are for act for jurassic park uh, is for oh for like is for yeah yeah for for making movies right is that yeah, what you're, the, like for I the actual the like making the movie to actually yeah. activate genomes in chickens to turn them into dinosaurs is cheaper than the CGI and teams that they pay for <laughs> to make the movies. Absolutely, no, it, it definitely is. It definitely and that's is. That's the craziest uh, concept yeah. of all. Right, right. So you think that like. Man, if only you could allocate uh, the funds to these uh, kind of projects. Good thing the Mammoth Project was able to, you know, raise a hundred million, you know, like that. I mean, it was it was pretty quick. Uh, but the but you know this as far as uh, some sort of a dinosaurian bird, uh, micro raptor uh, revival project, you know, you could uh, certainly get that funding together if you had the right to, you know if you're able to connect the right people and get um, some of the scientists uh, that were a part of it uh, that have done independent stuff. I know there was a researcher at Harvard that did some stuff. There's a, um, uh, he, he was the one that activated the snouts and the chickens. 
a uh, uh, Hans that's Larsen. Already, that's been done. Yeah, that's been done, and he did. He just didn't hatch the embryos. He's like, okay, well, I did in a lab, and then just didn't hatch them. So they would what have been chickens that, and snouts. What does that mean? <laughs> he didn't. So how how does he know that he did it? Well, you could you could see you could you could manipulate the genome early on in uh, uh, in uh, development, and then see that the embryo has developed with an alligator or dinosaurian like snout. And then you just kind of discard the embryos because you don't hatch them for ethical reasons. There, a lot of stuff is actually done like that through uh, embryo manipulation. You just don't hatch the embryos. You just don't. Come on. That's uh, the whole point. Yeah. I know. I know. It's uh, it's crazy. But uh, if you were to get a private, I think he, the, uh, you know, I can't remember the, the guy's name. But uh, he is at, uh, I believe he's at Harvard. He's in a developmental or evolutionary biology you know, setting and, and, um, he, uh, published papers on it and he definitely, he turned, he has pictures. I mean, it's like, it's all published data. You have the, the chickens with, uh, these kind of alligator dinosaur like snouts. And, uh, he was able to activate that gene. Uh, Hans Larsen at, um, he's another researcher that was, who was actually identified the, the teeth gene and I believe the tail as well. So he added like vertebrae at the tail and stuff and had kind of like a long dinosaur tail and these things. And, and so nobody's hatched the embryos uh, to term because in manipulative biology, you pretty much just manipulate the embryo, uh, record the, uh, the, 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 the differences in the embryo, and then you just kind of discard it. You don't bring it to term. On the ethical point, it's so ridiculous because it's not like these animals are being created to be destroyed and right. all of these people are not vegetarians right <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> this, this animal will get a better life than you sure. know their dinner oh yeah no i mean think of like the like the, the the literal just absolute genocide of chickens like like billions of if not like a trillion at this point chickens that have been like killed in mass farming uh it's just like, you know, bringing a micro raptor that you know, to life would have such a, it probably have a better life than most dogs and cats, you know? It's funny. I see um, Elon Musk has uh, his artificial intelligence company and they have, they have pigs and those are the best treated pigs oh, on yeah. the entire <laughs> planet. They have like four caretakers per yeah. pig. Yeah, <laughs> like everyone's talking about like the bioethic. Me, or the, or the, mean, you know, meanwhile, yeah. the people who are criticizing them are eating bacon for breakfast. Right, right. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I think that would be very, very cool and historically yeah. significant. Obviously, you want to stay away from creating what happened in Jurassic Park. But yeah, I mean, maybe that's just the inevitable. Yeah, and, and, and that analogy throughout the movie is prevalent in so many other aspects of life, especially in pharmaceuticals and other stuff. Interesting. So where, where do you think that goes from, from here? Wait till somebody steps up to the plate. I think you have to have a, uh, an organizer with enough uh, connections to facilitate funding. And essentially what it comes down to is uh, money talks. For sure. Well, the mammoth thing would definitely bring a lot of attention to these concepts. So I think that sounds yeah. like a first it, stepping stone in the space. 
it, it is and the basis for the company also too because i know you asked before like why people would invest it what, what came to mind um was that you know the company is actually looking to do other things with crispr and the mammoth resurrection project the idea is that if they can accomplish this then shoot i mean anything is possible then they can accomplish anything that's yeah. where it gets scary where they start doing it to humans because mm-hmm. yeah. you can already pick what gender you want your kid to be oh yeah sure yeah you can um you do that through a semen selection so you have x and y chromosome semen uh that uh or i should say sperm rather um that uh that you could actually select for and you do that through i was at a lab in um texas there's a lab called sexting technologies and i was uh, looking at their uh their uh their semen sorting uh, technology and they pretty much have a uh they have a machine that shoots a laser through the the, the undesirable semen so you have a you know x or y chromosome semen so you can you could yeah you could you could uh you could sex sort for uh you know what kind of gender you want uh you could do pretty much anything I, for I humans color, i believe as well Oh yeah, anything. Uh, getting rid of hereditary diseases. Like, that's. I mean, come on. That's. I. I don't think that's a bad thing. Oh no, absolutely not. There was a University of Washington uh, paper that that came out a few years ago, and uh, they did the, they did just that. They took the embryos of uh, a couple. I believe the wife might have had uh, some sort of genetic disorder. That was uh, she. She was um, recessive to it. And so they took embryos and they actually were able to knock out the, uh, knock out the, uh, gene that is the, uh, recessive, um, uh, abnormality that goes throughout their family. I forgot what disease it was, but, uh, um, you could do that. You'll be able to do that with humans. That's crazy. This whole time I, d- I thought you couldn't bring back dinosaurs, but I didn't realize that those traits would still exist in birds no oh, yeah yep i mean the whole blueprint throughout time is still kind of uh compacted in each of our cells pretty crazy i'm sure you could do some crazy stuff to humans too if you wanted to oh yeah but i mean anything that just make us look more like monkeys right yeah <laughs> yeah that, that was where that we was came those, from yep that was like those two brothers that were covered in head to toe and fur uh, that's why they were their their circus act was like the two monkey guys that, you know, that were jumping around. Were there, yeah, it was um, their genome had that underlying trait that just didn't go away. Yeah, it was um, it was a uh, two two brothers in, in Mexico, and they just had that that gene that uh, uh, that you know was pretty much prevalent. It was it was a it was a simian like uh, gene that uh, uh, allowed them to be covered in yeah head to toe, and and uh, that was their. That was their abnormality. It was an atavism activation, and that gene was just activated. Fascinating. Huh. Well, yeah. Harrison, as always, thank you so much for coming on. The Duke-UNC game that's coming on after we're recording this stands no chance to how good this conversation was <laughs> and how interesting. I'm excited for everybody who's who's going to listen to this on, on Spotify and Apple and other platforms to hear this and those um, you know, a hundred plus people who popped in here throughout this. Harrison, thank you so much again for doing this, man. And it's always a pleasure to have you on. Hey, Buster. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me. Sweet. All right, everybody. See you guys next time. Peace. Everyone take care.